18. All right, Matthew chapter 18. The title of this morning's message is Like a Child. Like a Child. And so it seemed appropriate that there would be um, a baby or a child on the cover of the bulletin. And that is a very cute baby for sure. Uh, that baby is the youngest of the Thomas kids. His name is Remington. And that picture was taken just over 10 years ago as Remington came into the world. Remington is a really interesting uh, child uh, for sure. They all are, but he's very interesting. He's one of those where, you know, we had Jaya and Xander and Miley. And my wife and I are like, yeah, we're done having kids. Except, you know, if you don't do something about it, you're still going to have kids, right? And I'm not going to get into that. That's a whole different study, which we're not going to talk about this morning. But we ended up, my wife is like, oh, by the way, we're having another child. And I was like, all right. Now, I wasn't bummed that we were having a child. I was just being selfish for a moment is what I was doing. Here's why. And it's not justifiable. I'm just explaining my selfish nature. So here's how it worked. We had three children. And we got through the accessory stage. When you have kids, you get it. You have all these accessories that you got to take with you. You got like bags with extra stuff and like pack and plays. And like, you're just like this human, like U-Haul. Like you're carrying stuff back and forth. This little child has so many accessories that go with them. And so we were at the stage where the accessories were decreasing. And we actually hit this point with Miley where it's like, you know what? We're not going to eat that crib anymore. Yes. Yes, we get to reclaim this part of the room. We're going to need that changing table. Oh, yes. And so we're like, oh, and with, with a smile on my face, I was taking all of these accessories and taking all of the extra things and like getting them put in the garage because we're going to have a yard sale or give them away to other families that are having children. And it's like, this is going to be great. And it was right about that point. I just stacked it kind of smiling at all the stuff that we were putting away. It's like, all right. And then Don's like, oh, so, um, so we're having another baby. I'm like, Oh, that's great. So good. Had nothing to do with Remington or any of our kids. It was just my selfishness. of I was done with that chapter. I was ready to get to the next chapter. Oh, it's an extended chapter. I didn't know it was going to be extended. Okay. And, you know, here we are 10 years later. We can't imagine life without Remington. We can't imagine life without him. Um, I'm going to share one specific story about him later on in our study. But, yes, he is our cover baby. We've never done that before, but there's a cover baby. So now we've got a cover baby. Like a child, Matthew chapter 18. We're going to start right in the very first verse this morning. So would you agree with me in prayer? Papa, as we come before you, thank you for bringing us here this morning. Thank you that you've drawn us here. Without you, without your strength to get us here, we wouldn't have even been able to get here. We pray that this morning, as we have your word open, that we would hear your voice speaking to us. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would take the words that I speak, that they would be your words and that the words would impact every person listening in the way that they need it to impact them. We thank you so much that you care for us and we pray that by the end of this message, we would understand how much we depend upon you and need you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. So today's passage is Matthew 18. There are two parallel passages in Mark 9 and Luke 9 telling the same story from two different perspectives. We are going to um, look at those as well in the course of us this morning. But let's start out with one verse. It's Telios. Let's start with one verse and then spend a few minutes talking about that one verse. Let's do it. Matthew 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? All right. It's a great question, right? You just look at that verse there. If you're kind of, you know, just playing Bible roulette, You know, you're just kind of flipping through the Bible one day and you land at Matthew 18 and you go, I'm going to read the very first verse. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of uh, in the kingdom of heaven? Great verse, great verse, great passage of scripture. Good question, disciples, except we're about to learn is that their question, while the question in and of itself is not a bad question, their hearts were wrong. It is possible for us to ask the right question, but with the wrong heart. And if we were just take, that's the danger of taking just one verse out of context here. We have to figure out what came before this verse, what's coming up after this verse so we can understand what's going on. Is there more that happened? I mean, was it just the disciples coming up to Jesus going, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Well, Mark gives us a little bit more of the backstory and tells us what led up to the question being asked here. 
Mark chapter 9, verse 33 and 34. You'll see it on the screen behind me. And they came from Capernaum. So we get a little bit more detail where they were coming from. And when he was in the house, he asked them, Jesus asked the disciples, what were you discussing on the way? (laughs) Verse 34, but they kept silent for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Oh, that changes it just a little bit, doesn't it? We've seen this before. This idea is that they're walking along and maybe, you you know, kids do this at times. As parents, you may hear your kids out in the backyard or someplace and they don't know that you can hear them, but they're arguing with one another. Mom and dad love me more than they love you. No, mom and dad love me more. I was first. You were last. And, you know, kids can have some pretty mean arguments with one another, especially when it starts to go with, you know, parents love me more than they love you. It can start like, ooh, okay, wow, we're pulling out the sharp, the sharp words here now. Well, it's not just children that can do that. These disciples here, as they're walking, they were walking and they were just like, no, I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. No, no, I'm the greatest. Jesus was hearing them bickering like little children. And so when they ended up coming to a home where they stopped, Jesus said, hey, by the way, what were you guys talking about while we were walking? And it's that moment where the kids are like, I don't want to say you, you say, I'm not talking. You say, no, I don't know. I believe it was the same way with the disciples where they're going, oh no, he heard us. You would think that they would at this point realize that Jesus hears everything and that he knows everything. But what were they actually talking about? They were arguing over who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. Now, right there we go, okay, now they're down to the level of children that are bickering. But I want to tell you something. It's actually worse than that. Remember, we're going to take this story and connect it to the other stories that we've just read. They came from Capernaum. What happened in Capernaum? For that, you just have to go back a couple verses and I'll paraphrase what it is. But in in the last chapter, in chapter 17... Actually, I'll just read it. Chapter 17, verse 22. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. Okay, keep in mind, Jesus had just told them that he was going to be killed. And what are they talking about on the road from Capernaum? Hey, so he's going to be gone soon. I think I deserve to be the leader. No, I deserve to be the, you don't deserve to be the leader. He's going to be dead soon. I deserve to be, no, I have better, I, I'm smarter than you are. No, I'm better looking than you are. No, I'm richer than you are. No, I'm better qualified. Do you see how dark it got with these guys? I mean, it's one of those where it's the idea of, oh, his Jesus' body isn't even cold yet. Jesus' body isn't even dead yet. And they're already trying to figure out who's going to take over for Jesus. Wow. So we start out this story and Jesus already is going, what were you talking about back there? Could you imagine? Well, Jesus, we were talking about, you know, who's going to take over after you die. That would be like in a family, grandpa or grandma and like all the kids are like, kids, what are you talking about? Oh, mom, we were just talking about when you die, which one of us is going to get your stuff? Like how messed up is that conversation? So then, how messed up was this conversation that they were having? That's why I just wanted you to know right off the bat, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Wrong heart that this question was being asked with. And so Jesus, he knows all things. In their culture, in their society, ranks and levels were really, really important. Like, if you know, you would say, like, I'm of this rank or I'm of this family and we are this important or we have, you know, we're on this on this pyramid. We are way up here in their culture. Rank was so important to them. And so here you see the disciples starting to take on the worldly mentality and go position, position, got to jockey for position. If I'm going to make it to the top of this pyramid, I got to step on a bunch of people. And to get higher up on my pyramid, I got to make sure that I step on more people. Jesus here is watching them arguing and stepping all over each other so that they might be in their minds the next leader. And there's some awkward moments here because Peter, 
we don't have Peter saying anything here and we don't have any specific disciple being quoted as saying anything. So we're not here to like put words in disciples' mouths. But if we remember Matthew in this, this gospel here, Peter, Peter himself had some pretty amazing things happen to him. Peter got to walk on water with Jesus. So whether Peter said that or not, and I'm not saying that he did, other disciples would have known that because they were in the boat watching Peter and Jesus walking back to the boat. They could have been like, oh, Peter probably thinks he was going to be the leader because he got to walk with Jesus. He had that unique. Peter also got to be on the mountaintop and James and John could have chimed in and be like, we were there too. Like we're the final three contestants. Everybody else is going to get voted off this island. It's going to be the three of us. And then we're just going to go till the death. And then one of us is going to competition going to, wow, you see what's happening? Like they're getting so at each other's throat. But here's something else that happened with Peter. The last thing we read last week in Matthew 17 Jesus performed a miracle. Remember, there's some temple taxes that need to be paid. And Jesus said to Peter, go fishing. The first fish you get, open its mouth. You'll see a coin in there and it'll pay for both me and for you. There's something amazing about that miracle. That miracle was done for one person, Peter. It was an individual miracle that was done for him. Now, again, I'm not saying Peter was saying any of these things, but I think we can see room here where people could have reasons to boast, right? And go, I'm better qualified. I should be the one. It's always a nasty moment, right, in a, in a conversation where there's a group of people and somebody has to figure out who's going to lead. And everybody at that point starts to like eye each other, size everybody up. All right, I can take those people. That one's going to be hard. I need to get an alliance between me and we'll vote that person down. And then these, and then I can become the, it's a very worldly way of operating. And for Jesus, he's watching his disciples operate in this worldly methodology. And so Jesus is going to teach them a lesson and it's going to address their heart. Look at verse number two in Matthew 18. And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That is a huge statement. I have to become like a child to enter your kingdom. What does that mean? Does that mean I have to be like, da-da, goo-goo? Does that mean I have to be like, I'm tired? Do I have to throw a tantrum like a child? What does it mean when Jesus is saying these things? Adults are not called to be childish. Very important and not well known in our society. Adults are not called to be childish. If you see a child, I mean, this is, there's no issue with a child acting like a child. And I think as a parent, that has frustrated me at times. Why are you acting like a five-year-old? You five-year-old, right? <laughs> because they're five. It's not unusual for a child to act like a child. It is very disappointing to see an adult act like a child. And so Jesus here is saying, but if you want to enter my kingdom, you have to be like a child. Well, first of all, let's talk about, I want to talk about this adults acting like children thing just for a moment, because the Bible speaks clearly about this. In 1 Corinthians 13, 11, Paul writing to the church, because there were some childish things going on in the church. He writes to this Corinthian church and Paul said, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. So if you're a child and you speak like a child, that makes sense. Thinking like a child, that makes sense. And children reason like children. There's no issue and no problem with that. But I like this right here. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. It doesn't say when I became a man, I just automatically, childish ways just left me. No, it's a choice. I gave up childish ways. It's very sad in our society to see 20, 30, 40 and older year olds acting like children in adult bodies. I didn't get the shiny thing that I wanted. That person's got the job that I wanted. I just, uh, ah! it's the most pathetic thing. And it should not be that way. But unfortunately, it means that that child in an adult body never gave up their childish ways. You know, there, 
There is one area where we're called to be very simple in our ways. In fact, the Bible says that we're supposed to be like an infant when it comes to a certain thing. Well, Jim, you said we're not supposed to be childish. We're supposed to give up our childish ways. Yes, in all things, but there's one thing in the Bible that I found that tells us that we should be like an infant in it. And I want to show it to you. It's also to this church. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 13, a little further, or chapter 14, verse 20. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. We got that, but here it is. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In other words, when it comes to the things that are evil, the things that are not of the Lord, you don't have to dive super deep into it to go, that's evil. What the Bible's telling us is don't become this PhD expert, double major on evil. I know that that's evil, but I want to know how evil it is. No, because what happens is a person that dives deep into that can get entrapped by that. And so very clearly, the Bible tells us when it comes to evil, be an infant. Know that it exists. Don't just be like, what evil? I don't know what evil exists. No, know that it exists, but you don't have to become an expert in it. What you should be an expert in, what you should grow in is in your thinking. You should be mature in your thinking. Okay, so Jesus is not telling us to be childish. That is correct. He's telling us to be childlike. What does it mean to be like a child? Well, he's going to tell us in the very next verse. Look at verse four, Matthew 18, verse four. Whoever humbles himself like this child, oh, humbles himself like this child, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It's about humility. Humility is what Jesus was trying to get across to his disciples when it came to this child. This child is a humble child. You need to be like this child in his humility if you want to enter into, if you want to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You think about children. Children were loved in their society, but they didn't have any power or privileges. For a child in Jewish society, they were completely dependent upon their parents. We even have that title now in our society. We call them dependents when it comes to taxes and other things. Do you have any dependents? Meaning they depend upon you. Jesus is saying, you need to be humble like this child. This child depends upon his parents. You need to depend upon your heavenly father and you're not doing it. Wow. Humility. Is that what the point is here? That is the point. Earlier in the gospel of Matthew, Jesus started off a section called the Beatitudes. And you may know it by the blessed are. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Those are called the Beatitudes. That's a section of it. Well, when Jesus was speaking and saying, here's how you can be blessed, he started with the very first Beatitude. And do you see it right here on the screen here? Matthew 5, 3. This is how he started it. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the, there it is again, kingdom of heaven. You want the kingdom of heaven, you have to be poor in spirit. What does that mean? We did a study when we were in Matthew 5, but here's what it is. Poor in spirit, it means, you can also say it this way, blessed are those who are spiritually bankrupt. What? How are you starting this, Jesus? Blessed are those who realize that they're spiritually bankrupt for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's exactly what Jesus was saying. What Jesus is saying is blessed is the person that realizes their position with God. That realizes, God, what do I have to offer you? I have very little to give you. My life, that's all I have to give you. You are the king above all. And Jesus says, blessed is that person who realizes that they are spiritually bankrupt apart from God because that's the kind of heart that will have the kingdom of heaven. That is the opposite of a prideful person. You know, the thing with humility, humility is so interesting because humility is one of those things where a person who talks about it, the more you talk about how humble you are, the less you have of it. The more you focus on it, the less you have of it. It's a really weird kind of a thing because you're like, if I was just like, yeah, guys, so we're talking about humility and I just want to talk about how humble of a person that I am. I mean, my humility is like off the charts. Well, <laughs> wrong answer, not humble. The humble person doesn't mention that they're a humble person. Why? Because they're humble. <laughs> Oh, my brain hurts. Yes, a little bit. It does. Because it goes opposite of what the world says. 
You see, the world has it upside down and God's kingdom is right side up. It's just that day by day we walk out there, we're in an upside down world where the values and what's important is said and it's the opposite of what God says. And we as Christians have to go, which kingdom am I a part of? Who is my king? Who do I follow? Do I follow Jesus or do I follow the king of the upside down world, the world that's wrong side up? Jesus is saying here that if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you have to be humble, which means humility. Humility is not that you put yourself down. Humility is just that you don't think about yourself as much. You're not the primary. Let me think about me more. Let me be, let me think about my pain, my struggle, my challenge, my accomplishment, my resume, me, me, I, me, my, me. Being humble is that you don't focus on yourself and you let God take care of you as he provides for you. So what am I going to do with all my spare time? You focus on God and you focus on the people he's put around you. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's just that you think about yourself less. Now, if you're like me, and some of you aren't, some of you don't have such a twisted mind as mine, but some of you may be like, okay, cool. So if I want to be great in God's kingdom, then I need to be humble. So I'm going to try really hard to be humble. (laughs) No. Because then my motivation is to be great in God's kingdom when my motivation to just be, Lord, I just want to do whatever you want. Sometimes a person does a really good thing because they hope it'll give them some spiritual benefit in a selfish way. At which point you've kind of missed the whole point of why you were doing it. God, I'm going to be super humble so that I can be great in your kingdom. And God's just like, how about you just be humble? How about you worry about me taking care of you being great? I have a challenge with doing this. And I've I've had a challenge with doing this ever since I've become a Christian. And it's filling out a resume. I get why there's a resume. I understand it. An employer is trying to figure out whether you fit the criteria and whether you have the experience in an area and whether you'd be a good fit for their company and whatnot. I understand why there's resumes. I get that. My issue is not with the resume itself. My issue is what it could do to me as I fill it out. And maybe you haven't experienced it, but let me tell you what I've experienced at times. Okay, I need to write down my accomplishments. What, I, what have I? And sometimes when you fill out a resume, you start to remember the things you've done. You're like, oh, that's right. I did do that. That was, that was pretty awesome. That was pretty awesome. And then, oh, I didn't realize they did it for that long. I did that for a long time. Man, I was super faithful at doing that. Maybe super faithful, but not super humble right now. You see how quick it is in, if we get a resume mindset when it comes to our things that we've done for the Lord. How we can just be like, oh yeah, and I've done this, and I've done this, and I've done this, and I've done this. And it's, humility can very easily go out the window. In the upside down world that we live in, you're going to have to fill out resumes for positions, certain positions. I encourage you, it's not the issue of filling out a resume. I'm, I'm asking you to do this. Pray that God keeps a hand over your heart as you fill out the resume so that you are not consumed by pride. Because sometimes when it comes to that resume filling or that attitude, you, it's almost like this is happening in the background. And the head is swelling and it's like, I am so amazing. I forgot how amazing I am. Oh boy. You're, you're top heavy and you're going to fall face. You're going to face plant here in just a moment. It's interesting because Jesus is telling us that we have to come to God in humility and it's with a humble heart that heaven is opened up to us. You cannot become a Christian unless you have a humble heart. Because no one comes to God and goes, God, I think I'm going to be an amazing addition to heaven. So I'm ready for you to let me in now. And uh, I think you're just going to be really pleased by having me be a part of whatever thing you got going on there. So you just, uh, yeah, I pretty much feel like I deserve it. So I'd love to, uh, you know, we could work together on things. (laughs) That person is not going to be a Christian. If you are not humble, you cannot be a Christian. Because you have to come to God going, God, I got nothing. I need you. Apart from you... I'm lost. God, save me. Jesus, I acknowledge what you did on the cross for me. To become a Christian, the only, there's only one path, and that path is labeled humility. 
There's a parable Jesus taught, and this parable involved two people praying. It's in Luke chapter 18, verse 9 through 14. It shows the balance between pride and humility. And he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they that they were righteous. I'm so righteous. And treated others with contempt. There's people stepping on other people to get higher up on that pyramid. Verse 10. Two men, Jesus telling this parable, two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Wow. The thing is, when we get into this prideful mindset, we can very easily start telling everybody else what our resume is too. Did you know that I did? Have I ever told you that I did? And the thing is, when people get stuck into sharing their resume with everybody to show everybody how amazing they are, first of all, that's really like a, you just start cringing when you hear a person repeatedly do that. The thing is, a person that has gotten into the habit of doing that, they don't even realize how often they do it. They're well practiced at sharing how great they are. In this parable, this Pharisee is like, I'm just so amazing. And then what does he do to make himself feel better? He's got to look at somebody else and say, I'm much better than that person. And these are all signs of a prideful person. But Jesus goes on in this parable and he says, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He couldn't even look up. He's just like, he knew who he was. He realized, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This, in this parable, this tax collector realized, I am not worthy to be in the presence of God. God, please, I just ask for your mercy. I am a sinner. What does Jesus say about the prayers of these two people? Verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, the one who was humble, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. James said this in James 4.10, Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Christian, our only role is that we would be humble before God. Now we get a choice. Here's your choice. You can humble yourself before God, or God can humble you, and that's called humiliation. That's where we get the word humiliation from. It's okay for us to be humiliated from time to time. You know what that means? That means we've been humbled. It's okay. I don't like to feel humiliated. Who does? Who does? But you know what? Humiliation is a reality check. Well, I know all this about all that. Actually, no, you don't, because what you just said was wrong. Oh, okay, I'm going to walk over here now. And you know what humiliation does? It gives the person who's been humiliated the option to go, you know what, I was wrong. Or they could take the other path and go, no, I wasn't wrong. It's because I misunderstood, you misunderstood me. It's your fault. When you're humiliated, I want to encourage you, receive the humiliation. Receive it and learn from it and be humble. Because the alternative is that you become a prideful person and it's never your fault. It's never your fault. You're not failing because you never show up at class or turn in your homework. No, no, it's that instructor. That instructor's got it out for you. Or possibly because you never show up at class or turn in your homework. It's that police officer. That police officer had to fill his quota. That's why he pulled me over. Or you were going 30 over the limit in a school zone. I don't know. You see, every one of us will have opportunities where we can just go, I was wrong. And you just leave it, There's something so freeing when you just admit the truth. Because otherwise, if you just go, no, it wasn't me, you're, you're training yourself to be a liar. And your resume is being padded with a bunch of false statements. No, it wasn't my fault. It was my parents. It was this thing. It was society. It was this. It's not me. It's never me. It's never me. It's always somebody else. Yeah, you're prideful. Jesus is offering each one of us the opportunity to humble ourselves. You can humble yourself or God can humble you. You pick. What do you want? I would encourage you, humble yourself. Humble yourself before the Lord. And so 
you know, we read through here in passage, we see so many things going on here. There's an important statement that I need to say. And what we saw the disciples doing here was they're becoming very competitive with one another. We as Christians are not called to be competitive. Wait till I finish the sentence. Wait, what about athletics or what about, you know, no, 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 no. We're called to run the race. We're called to fight the good fight. No, there are, there are scenarios where being competitive is appropriate, but where it is inappropriate is when it comes to how we interact with each other in the body of Christ. Christian, you are not competing against another believer. You are not on a pyramid where you have to step on other believers so that God will pay more attention to you. That's the upside down world's way where you have to be, you have to make yourself better than others so that you can shine or you can make yourself feel better about yourself. You know, what's amazing about being a Christian is God loves you and he has enough capacity to love you fully without you putting anyone else down. That's the difference of the kingdom that we are a part of. That's the difference of Jesus being our king. You don't have to be competitive with another believer when it comes to serving the Lord and loving God. Oh, if, if, if I can't believe that person's getting more attention from God. That must mean God has less attention towards me. That's not how God works. He just loves you. I got to ask you this question because I've struggled with this at times in my life. Do you struggle when you see others enjoy success Whoa. and enjoy um, opportunities that you have you just didn't get? Or do you find yourself descending to, why did they get that chance? I deserve it better. I'm better qualified. I have more experience. I, I, I. We are never called to compete against each other for the affections of God. God already loves you. You know what that means? That means you're free to be the person God has called you to be, to serve where God has called you to be. You know, what I do here is I serve and I, one of the things I do, I have the privilege of serving and teaching here, which can make some people go, oh, wow, like he's really arrived, like he gets to teach. I didn't pick this. God picked this. If God picks something else, then God picks something else. For the person that prays faithfully through those prayer requests, for the person that comes to our prayer meetings and just is faithfully there praying and never gets their name mentioned, does God think or love them any less than the pastor who's up here a couple hours every week? No, not at all. We get it confused because we compare Christianity and our relationship with God to the things we see out in the world. And we go, I've got to like elbow people down. I've got to kick them in the face and I've got to be able to get above and beyond so that I can be a better Christian. Being a better Christian, being a better Christian never involves you trampling on others. Ever. And so for each one of us here this morning, we have to ask ourselves, am I being humble and am I, can I rejoice with other believers? Can I rejoice when an other believer has an amazing answer to prayer? Even if their answer to prayer was the thing that I was praying would happen to me, but it hasn't happened to me yet. Can you rejoice in their answer to prayer? Because if not, if it's like, oh, I just, I don't know, why does God love them more than careful? Because what's happening in your heart is not a good thing. Ask God to change that. You know, should we be competitive in any area? I mean, yes, there are areas in life where you can be competitive, but there is one area when it comes to being a Christian amongst each other that we should be competitive with each other with. Jim, you just said we're not supposed to be competitive with each other. Yeah, except this one area that I found. Let me show it to you. Romans 12, 10. Love, so all of you that have like a competitive nature, check this out. You should grab onto this verse. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another. Yeah, outdo one another. In what? In showing honor. You want to be competitive? You've got a competitive nature? Awesome. Apply that as you show honor to other people. What does that look like? You know what? I want to do something to bless you. Oh, you do? You receive a blessing from somebody. Hey, I've been praying for you. I saw that you had a need. I wanted to just help you out in this area. Just want to say, I was just praying for you today. Thank you so much. You know what you're supposed to do at that point? Oh, game on. All right. I see how this is going. I'm going to outdo you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to honor you. I'm going to try to honor you. Okay, I'm going to honor you. I'm going to do this for you. Oh, really? I'm going to double down. I'm going to honor you. If you want to be competitive, the Bible tells you as a Christian in the body of Christ, how can you can be competitive with one another? How? Show honor to other people. Try to outdo it. And what you'll do is you'll grow in your relationship with that other person and you will represent Christ because God is so generous. He does so much above and beyond what we can ask or think. And you know what we're called to do? 
outdo each other. In what? In, in, in trying to be, you know, attention and what the world says is important? No, in honoring people. Just make it your thing. We're like, you know, that person over there, I don't know, it seems like they're struggling. I'm going to make it a point this week to pray for them every single day. I'm just going to pray for them. And every time they come to my mind, I'm just going to pray for them. I don't even know who they are, but I'm going to pray for them. See, you can show honor to somebody and not even know who they are. Church, you competitive? There you go. Be competitive. You should be. We all should be. We should all be outdoing each other when it comes to showing honor. And now Jesus is there and he has this child there. And Jesus says this, verse five, we're back in Matthew chapter 18. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Mark gives us a little bit more about what Jesus said. Mark 9, 36 and 37. He took a child, put him in the midst of them and taking him in his arms. So Jesus not just left him there. He takes this little boy and holds this little boy in his arms. And he says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. God, I want to receive you. I want to show you how much I love you. You know what God says? God says, then you receive children. When you love children, it shows that you love Jesus and it shows that you love God. Jesus makes a direct link between loving children and caring for children and showing love to Jesus and showing love to God. Our kids ministry here is not a babysitting ministry. The children are taught the word of God. They are fed the word of God because it's not going to be very long before they also, as they're in the upside down world, they'll be challenged by thinking that's exactly opposite of what God says. But if they've never been taught what God says and where God stands, they're never going to know where they should stand. And so sometimes children are looked at as like, oh, okay, you're a little kid. Go, go to the back. Just go sit in the, go, go, go back. Go away. Go away. Children are not the future. Children are the present. They're already here. They're already here. So what we as a church should be doing is we should be pouring our hearts out into the younger generation. Why? Because they're already here. Sometimes it's a question of who's going to be the future pastors, worship leaders, community outreach, beach cleanup, um, uh, uh, missionaries. Who are the ones that are going to lead home groups? Who are the ones that are going to be doing all these things? Who's going to carry the baton? I got to tell you, they're not coming. They're already here. Are we preparing them for what they are going to be expected to as they mature to pick up and run with? This morning, I just want to share a little bit, you know, for one of my sons, not the picture that you saw on the screen, that's Remington. For my son, Xander, my son, Xander, you know, we, we've been streaming on YouTube, hi, Facebook, uh, for the last month or so. And so as we've been streaming, it's this idea of like, okay, well, who are we going to get to like, we've got to set the system up. But then I, you know, I'm not going to, I can't run the system while that'd be really awkward. Hold on just a moment. Yeah, that's good. Right there. All right. Hi. Like, no, that's just weird. Like totally weird. Not doing that. Who's going to run it? And so in my mind, I was like, all right, so who are we going to get to run it? And the Lord just like, well, you have some people who happen to have a dad who's technically minded and uh, they're in your family. I'm like, oh Yeah. My son Xander, he is always, even when he was young, he would be this kid to be like, Dad, Dad, check this out. Do you see that sunset? Dude, look at those colors. Do you see how like it's fading right? Do you see that? Look at that. It's like going from like that orange to that like pink right there. That's so cool. Do you see that right there? Or Dad, like the Grand Canyon, look right there. Like that's so these colors right there. Do you see the shadows? Do you see that? He's always had this eye for the way things look. Well, the Lord just like, how about you have your fifteen year old son just run it for now? So for the last four weeks, if you've ever watched the video stream or done any of that stuff, Xander's been the one switching cameras, changing cameras, going live and putting all that stuff in. He's 15 years old. Wow, that's a great boost for the future. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to go, you know what? You can take this responsibility. Oh, by the way, everybody in the internet's depending upon you to make sure this happens. <laughs> Trained and equipped, but go for it. Well, what if I make, you'll make a mistake. Of course you'll make a mistake. You're just learning it, but you'll get better. Go. We should be pouring our hearts out into the next generation. Sacrificially? Well, is that going to cost me something? That is what the word sacrificial means. So you give up part of yourself so that someone else can grow in their walk with the Lord. I just encourage you, when you see the kids around here, just realize that in a few short years, we, our desire is to see them serving God 
in so many different ways. Doesn't even have to be within the walls of this church, just even in this community and in this world. Verse number six, last verse for us this morning here. But whoever causes a warning from Jesus, he's holding this little boy in his hands. Keep in mind, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Whoa. God cares for kids. Even if we live in a world that doesn't care for kids, God cares for children. God cares for children at all stages. And and we'll get more into this as we go uh, a little further here, probably even on a Wednesday night. But we live in a society where living in the womb is a very dangerous place for a child to be. God is very clear in his word as to what he thinks about children. Very clear. Jesus is holding this little boy. God has a plan and a purpose for every single child. What does God think about a person that talks to a child? It's like, God's not real. Okay, God's not real. He's not real. He's just a fairy tale. Okay, there is no God. And when you're dead, you're dead. It's all over after you die. No, you don't have real feelings. Those are just chemicals in your body. And the chemicals operate a certain way and you feel certain things, but those aren't real. Just live a good life and don't harm a bunch of people. And that's all that life is. But remember, above all else, there is no God. Jesus said, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. I didn't say that. Jesus said that. You know, the problem, there's, a, there's, there's quite a few problems that atheists have, but one problem that atheists have when it comes to children is that children have a natural belief in God. They have a natural belief that they're, oh, you're telling me for a child to be told, hey, somebody greater than us, somebody that's not even human, created everything that you see, all the stars in the sky and the fish in the sea. Children are just like, of course, yeah. They don't struggle with that. Yeah, but how is that possible? Like, yeah, they're in awe that God is so amazing, but children naturally don't have an issue with believing that there's a God. You know what you have to teach them? You have to falsely teach them that there isn't a God. Left to themselves, they believe that there's a God. It's in, they, it's in them. Romans speaks about it, that God has put it into every single person. And what does God feel about those that cause a little one to wander away from the faith? By the way, this great millstone, we're talking like thousands of pounds. Jesus is saying, if you, if you cause one of these kids to wander away from their belief in Christ, it would be better if you had a large thousand pound millstone tied around your neck and you get thrown into the deep part of the ocean. Now this crime, it's not like Jesus just made this up off the top of it there, his head. This was a punishment that existed in Syria and as well as Greece. What was it for? Like, why would you use such a crazy punishment? It was for parricide. Parasite. What's parasite? Killing your parents. The price for killing your parents was to have a millstone tied around your neck in Syria and Greece and dropped into the depth of the water. This is just those moments like when, when people are like, well, Jesus is just, he's like whatever I want. Jesus is just super cool. Like he's cool with whatever I do. I don't think you've read the Bible then. Jesus is king and you and I are not. Jesus is God in the flesh and you and I are not. He's the one that says what right and wrong is and you and I are not. And Jesus, in case anybody was confused, says it very clearly. My prayer is that we would encourage those that are younger to love Jesus at a young age. My prayer is that my kids would love Jesus more than I did at their age. I want them to have a boost as they walk with the Lord. I want to rejoice in the years to come as I see them growing up in the love and the admonition of the Lord and as they raise their kids in the love of the Lord. I honestly want to be a grandpa where it's like, Grandpa, read us this Bible story. It's like, oh yeah, cool. Yeah, Dad and Mom are reading this to us. Can you finish it? Oh, you bet. Absolutely. Absolutely. We have to pour our hearts out sacrificially for those things to happen. Now, 
we're, we're basically done with the message, but I want to say one important point. Please don't close your hearts or your minds or your ears at this point. Because I did say I was going to talk about this, this cute little kid right here, right, Remington? So that was 10 years ago. He's 10 years old right now, and he had something happen to him. And with kids, there's something else that I think for us as Christians we should remember. Kids are very resilient. Like they can bounce back from so many things that like for us as adults, like I would have been laid out by that. Like that would have just wiped me out. So my son Remington, a few days ago, he's like, dad, so I was watching this video and like parkour is just so cool. And I'm just like, oh, now we're at the parkour stage of life. All right, fine. If you don't know what parkour is, it's like free running, gymnastics, hurdling over objects and, you know, general, you know, I'm going to see if I can jump from here to there and do that. It's like, it's like amazing, skillful, there's skillful, there's style, there's a lot of things involved in it. But my 10 year old is like, so dad, I'm like, okay, so your friends at school have been talking about parkour and now you're talking about parkour. So now all around our house, like they're like going over stuff and like jumping over things. I'm like, and we're at this stage. So then a few days ago, Remington's like, all right, I can jump from this step to that step. And I'm like, okay. And in my mind, I'm like, okay, which is the closest hospital? All right, just, you know, it's one of those things like, all right, well, you know, you can't stop boys from being boys. And this is like, fine, go for it. So they're, they're doing it. So my older son, Xander, who's, you know, he's, he's, he's older than he's 15. Remington's 10. They're both like around the house, running around and nobody's walking anymore in our house. It's all like parkouring over stuff in the couch and things. It's like, all right, great. So they're outside and I'm just like, I'm smiling as a dad because I'm like, kind of like, that's cool. That's cool. They get to do that. It's fun. So then as I turn away, I just about catch Remington like parkouring off a bunch of steps. Like he's doing this like jumping thing. And I hear my older son Xander coming from the other side of the house. And he's also doing a parkour thing at full speed. And so I kind of catch out of the corner of my eye. I see my younger son Remington go this way. And I see Xander go that way. And I just hear like, oh, and then like, and so the older brother was bigger, and so he like kind of like hit him higher, and like Remy was full midair, unprotected, like, and like he's on the ground. And if you're a parent, I think you understand. Like you may get what I'm saying. If not, you think I'm totally cruel. But here it is. Like sometimes your kids are injured, and you're just like, you can kind of tell right away. You're like, okay, no, this is a big deal. And there's other times you're just like, ooh, it's gonna hurt you for a while, <laughs> but you're fine, right? This was the second one, because Remy's on the ground. He's just like, ah. And I realized this, he's never experienced this much pain in his life. It's the first time he's reached a new pain threshold, right? And so he's just like, because until then you feel like you're invincible, but he's hit this point where he's just like, ah, I'm like, Remy, so where does it hurt? Don't touch me. Don't touch me. I'm like, I gotta know. Like, and I'm like trying not to laugh. I'm like, I gotta know. Like, what's going on? Xander feels really bad. He's like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm like, you're fine. It wasn't intentional. You're fine. I'm like, Remy's like, dad, I just, oh, oh. And he had just told me earlier that day, he's like, dad, I want to go to the skate park. I'm like, okay, tomorrow morning. (laughs) Okay. We'll go Saturday morning. Sure. Well, I realized, I'm like, Remy, you want to go to the skate park? No, I don't want to go to the skate park. <laughs> so he goes to bed and it's like a lot of moaning, a lot of like, oh, he takes a shower. He's fine. He's got a little bruise. He's all right. Nothing's broken. So then it's like, Remy, how are you doing? And you see him around the house, like doing the limp, right? But then there's moments like, Remy, how are you doing? He's like, what? How are you doing? Oh, yeah. Oh. <laughs> So if you mention it, he notices it more. But if you don't, it's just like life goes on. The next day, Saturday, I really wish dad we'd gone to the skate park. I'm like, I'm like, well, why don't you ride your bike around? I can't ride my bike, my side. You think like a child, you reason like a child, fine. So then a few minutes later, I see him riding around on his bike. And I just go, you just look at how quick he bounces back, right? Physically, as adults, the older we get, our recovery time just takes longer. And sometimes it's not as complete. Okay, why did I bring all this up? I think we need to be like a child when it comes to how quick we bounce back, spiritually. If you've been a Christian for any amount of time, it's only a matter of time before you get hurt. I mean, wind knocked out of you, it really hurt. Like you've hit a new pain threshold when it comes to being a Christian. Maybe it's betrayal. Maybe it's a... Um, a a sorrow because an opportunity got missed. Maybe it's because of your own sin and you're just like, I, oh, I, oh. and you're just like, ah, oh. I just want to say, I understand there's a time for mourning. There's a time for that pain, but don't artificially extend the pain in your life by continuing to look at it. 
How are you doing with that thing? What thing? You know that thing? Oh, that, oh yeah, that really hurt. As a, oh, that really... I think some Christians artificially keep themselves in a pain state that they're not actually, they don't need to be there. How do I not stay there? Easy. You focus on something other than your pain. You focus on the Lord. You focus on other people. And as you focus on the Lord and you focus on the other people spiritually, you know what God does? God takes care of the thing that you're, that you're struggling with. If you stare at that thing you're struggling with, don't be surprised if you continue to stay in that thing that you struggle with. We need to be like a child. And so my prayer for myself is that the next time I get hurt deeply, that I'd be resilient. And I'd just be like, you know what? God's like, get on the bike already. You're fine. I don't know if I could do it, God. Yes, you can do it. I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up here and we're going to pray. And um, we'll close in a song. Papa, as we come before you, I thank you that your word is true. I thank you that you love us enough that you will humiliate us if our pride overtakes us. I thank you that you care about us enough that you will bring us low. Each of us prays this day that God, you would reveal in us the pride that uh, can so easily set us uh, the wrong way. God, we just want to honestly pray. If, If we struggle with rejoicing in other believers, other people's successes, we find ourselves jealous vengeful, having a, just a sour attitude towards people. And they've done, they haven't done anything to us. We just can't handle that things are going well for them. God, forgive us. And God, we ask for something that we can't do. God, please change our hearts. Cause us to rejoice when others rejoice. And God, cause us to sorrow with other people who are going through hard times. God, cause us to be humble. Cause us to not put ourselves down, but just not to think about ourselves as much as we do. Cause us to think about you way more. Cause us to think about those that you've put around us way more. And Lord, for our competitive nature, God, that we would outdo one another in honoring each other. I pray that that would show to a world that's upside down and they would ask, why are you so different? And we'd be able to tell them that because we serve a different king. Jesus, thank you for showing us what humility looks like. Thank you for being that servant and serving other people. We love you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen.